Turn with me, if you will, to uh, the book of Job, and we turn to our study in this uh, magnificent book. We'll be looking, um, Lord willing, at two chapters. Uh, if we are cut short, uh, chapter 9 actually has a good and excellent ending, and if we need to do that, we'll do that. But um, hopefully we'll be able to get through both. But let me just remind you of uh, what uh, the book of Job has been about to this point. We all remember that, that Job has gone through an unprecedented amount of suffering, right? And not just because there's been so much, um, because others have probably suffered similarly in terms of the vast amount of their loss. But I, I doubt that in human history there be very many who have lost so much in such a short amount of time. It is the concentration of his suffering that is so astounding, mind-boggling, and almost unbelievable. It, 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 if you had told me that your life had this much trouble, I would have been devastated for you. But then if you told me all of this happened within one 24-hour period of time, that would almost seem like, okay, now you're just making stuff up. But that is the story of Job, the part that we're familiar with. And as we've been studying, one of the things that has been good and bad is that Job is joined by his three friends, and each of them in turn, probably from the most senior member to the most junior member, will take turns addressing and trying to counsel Job. And unfortunately, their counsel is not always the most helpful thing. In fact, as they counsel and as we study their counsel towards Job, I think one of the lessons that we're constantly trying to draw out is how could they have done better? What, what was wrong with their counsel? Because we want to be better counselors. We want to be good counselors. How did they go wrong? And then at the same time, when Job responds to them, he will respond, as chapter 9 will be a, a response to Bildad, who has accused Job of having some hidden sin. And that he just needs to repent and plead to the Lord and that God will restore him. Because that's the formula of life. That the good are rewarded. The wicked are punished. And Bildad, as well as Eliphaz and Zophar, they understand that to be immediate. They understand that to be in this life. That if you're having trouble in this life, it's because something you've done in this life. And if everything's going well in this life, it's because you are doing something good in this life. It is as simple as that. The good receive good, the bad receive bad. And even if there's some mix at some point, it is, there's a purpose. Because even those that look good, Job, are actually practicing bad. Job. And so Job responds to each of his friends in kind. And it's not the kind of response that we'd expect like in a debate forum like our Greek-Roman style of debate where you say certain words, I pick apart your words, and I respond back to those statements. Not that simple. But more of, I agree with this, but let me tell you what I'm really thinking. And so it's them expressing their thoughts to one another. And chapter 9 is that. It's, it's Job expressing his concern, his problem, his pain to Bildad. But then the th interesting thing about Job that his friends do not share is that Job always has a response and then he has a prayer. And chapter 10 is that prayer. It's to God and it's Job's questions about the whys, the what's, and what am I supposed to do. 
So as we look at um, this unpacking dialogue, and that's what most of the book of Job will be, a dialogue amongst individuals who all agree about who God is, but seem to misapply what that means in each person's life. Remember, we keep saying that, and that's important for us to realize, that there is so much good theology in everything that the people, not in everything, but in every person's statement. It's not to say everything that they say is good theology, but most of it, a lot of it, is good and excellent statements about who God is and what He is like. The misapplication of what that means to their friend, to Job, the sufferer, that's where they go sideways. For example, none of them disagree that God is absolutely sovereign. See, it's an interesting thing. None of them have a dialogue that sounds something like, Job, stop blaming God. God doesn't do this stuff. Whatever happened to you just kind of just happened. That's what happens in the world. Bad stuff happens. None of them argue that. Every single one of them, Job's friends and Job himself, recognize God's full sovereignty. I mean, they embraced God's sovereignty as monolithic, as unchangeable and immovable. That's why they approach Job the way that they do. Each one of them is saying, Job, this is not a mistake or a coincidence. God does what he does because he is God. That's exactly what defines him as God. Nobody tells him what to do. He does as he chooses to do. So you must have done something against him. Job, on his part then, is struggling with that same issue of sovereignty. God is sovereign. I know that he is sovereign. I agree with you that he is sovereign. But my question is, then why is this happening? Because as I genuinely, honestly, and with all my integrity, look into the inner recesses of my soul, I cannot find something that is commensurate, that is equivalent to the kind of pouring out of suffering that God has ordained for my life. So that we're clear, and we'll see Job express this again and again, Job is not saying that he he is like God, holy, perfectly just. He is simply saying that like all human beings, though I do not measure to the glory of God, I cannot identify something that would deserve this response from him. But as I said, every single one of them recognizes that this is God's doing, his pouring out of suffering into Job's life. So that's why we're saying this is about Job's trouble with God's sovereignty. I love how one, um, uh, one scholar um, expresses this struggle. He says, if we may put it this way, some of God's actions express his character while others are the outworking of his longer plan to deal with evil. He's distinguishing, right? Those those actions of God that express his character and those actions of God that might be mysterious to us, but it is part of God's long game. He intends to deal with evil through these things. When God, he goes on to say, acts in steadfast love and faithfulness, these actions express his character directly. When he acts in faithfulness, in loving kindness, in graciousness, it expresses who he is. But when evil things happen, God is acting through the agencies of evil powers. And the actions do not reveal his character. They are part of his grand plan to turn evil to good 
to defeat evil, but they do not immediately reveal his character. This, this is the tension that Job is dealing with in chapter 9 and chapter 10. I'm setting us up because once we get to chapter 10, in his outpouring prayer to the Lord, he says stuff that is the strongest statements that we will find from Job. He comes very close to suggesting that God is unjust. He doesn't say it. He won't go that far. His theology is too tight. God has been too good. But he feels like God is very, very close to being very unfair to him. And that's why he has to question. That's why he has to wonder. And so this is Job's problem, his trouble with God's sovereignty. Let's uh, open in a word of prayer, and then we'll start to unpack chapter 9 and chapter 10. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we are thankful for the book of Job. For it now connects us uh, from a counseling perspective, from our desire to minister to others, to, to recognize how just good theology is not sufficient, that in our human limitation we often apply truth in ways that are hurtful, that aren't helpful, and that are just so detached from any sympathy or empathy that the suffering one might be enduring. And Father, it is also helpful because it is a constant reaffirmation of your sovereignty, of who you are, and that even those things that we may not understand clearly in terms of why they happen in our life now, Lord, we know it is part of what you are doing in this world for the greater purposes of your good and for the perfection of your saints and for the redeemed to know the glory of God more thoroughly one day. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to think through these things as Job tries to do. Help us to comfort those that are in in pain as his comforters, his friends should have done. And help us, Lord, to always remember that God is sovereign, yes, but he is also very, very good. And to lean in on who you are, even in the mysterious moments where we cannot explain why things happen. We will trust in you. We believe in you. Your scripture reveals that you are trustworthy to eternity. And so set our hearts on eternity, not just on the moment. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh-oh. So as we look at, uh, at our outline, if we'll get there. Oh, I broke it. Oh, there you go. All right. Um, We'll look at Job's problem in the first part of chapter 9. Job's options, that is kind of in the form of a a lament in uh, the end part of chapter 9. And then Job's very, very pointed questions um, that will be expressed in his prayer in chapter 10. We'll start with Job's... Something is wrong with my clicker. We'll start with Job's problem. Can we get two slides forward? Thank you. <clears throat> there is a, actually six subpoints, right? I think that goes from A to, to F, right? Uh, in, uh, in point one in chapter nine. And so I, I decided instead of kind of walking through one by one, we just, we get three and then we'll get another three and then that'll help us to move along a little bit. But this is Job answering Bildad. And as he answers Bildad, he begins... 
in verse 1 with a, with a response, verse 1 in the first part of verse 2, with a response that might surprise us. It says, Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so. In other words, Job begins by saying, Bildad, you are right about something. Right? He doesn't say, No, no, Bildad, you're crazy. You know? Um, you, you're mean. And both of those things might be charges that might appropriately be leveled against his friends. But nevertheless, he responds to him and says, There is something you've said that is true. And the true statement is that God, for sinners like us, is inaccessible. We don't get to walk into the throne room of God. We don't just approach Him. And so look at what verse 2 says. He begins with, Truly I know that it is so. Bildad, you are correct. How can a man be in the right before God? See, Bildad had said at Job chapter 8, verse 20 to 22, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tenth of the wicked will be no more. And Bildad is saying that if you would repent from whatever sin you are hiding, then God will reaffirm you. He will reestablish you. And Job is saying, man, if that were true, meaning if it was so that I am hiding some, some great wickedness that is, that is commensurate with the, with the suffering that God has poured into my life, then you would be correct. He's saying that is not a bad statement. Unfortunately, that's not where I am. He's saying it is true that human beings cannot be right before God. That, that term right or righteous is our forensic term, meaning it's the, it's, the, it's the language of the court of law. How can a mortal, a sinner... How can he engage God in a court of law? How can he be righteous in God the judge's eyes? There's a key question throughout all of Job. His friends would answer this. A man can be right before the Lord through his righteous behavior. Through his righteous behavior. But Job, though he may have agreed with that at one point, Seeing his own calamity, he, are, he is beginning to argue that he cannot be right, right? Um, he cannot be right and still, wait, let me say it better. He can be innocent and still receive suffering in this life. Job's arguing that he, as far as he can observe in his own life, as far as he knows, he is a keeper of the law, and like the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, he claims that he has kept the law from my youth. He is saying that I, I can't identify what would be so terrible that I have, I have done in this life that God would pour this into me. So he's saying, I, I can't identify it for you. So my question is, how can a man be right before the Lord? Their answer is, well, you just act right. You do what is right before him, and then you're going to be okay. Job's answer is that that's not sufficient for my case. Because it's not a one-for-one. One. And this is important for us, because I, I think this begins to address something that runs deeper than simply Job and his suffering. It is the self-righteous, right? And it's that self-righteous tendency in each of us that says, well, I mean, something's bad is happening to you. It must be, must be you doing something bad, right? Or perhaps it feels more like, you know, hey, I know something real bad is happening to you. Maybe you didn't do something to directly 
caused this to happen to you, but we're all sinners and we all deserve bad, so just take it. I mean, that, that sounds fine as long as that's not happening to me. Like if Job is my friend, I can imagine almost agreeing with Eliphaz and Bildad and going, yeah, Job, if there's something, I'm just saying, if there's something, then you need to confess. You need to make things right. That's easy to say, looking from the third person's perspective, because my life is okay. And though I've been sitting with you for seven days, and I'm trying to counsel you, in the end, I'm going to return home to my lavish living and everything expense paid, and we're going to be fine. My family's intact, my kids are doing okay, and my life is good. So different when the shoes are on the other foot. So different when the righteous is the one that is suffering. Job's point is, I know that you are correct about righteousness and God's kindness. But how can a man be fully right before God? Verse 3, if one wished to contend with him. And so, so in that question of righteousness, Job's point is, so then if I wanted to, to, to contend with him, and by this, again, I think it's legal uh, proceedings that he's talking about. If I called God right, to the court to say, Lord, I'm not sure if this is the good and excellent what you are doing to my life. If I were to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. In other words, it is impossible for the human being to give an answer that would be adequate to challenge God in a court of law. He is inaccessible. He's saying, you're correct about one thing, and that is that God is holy, and that we are not. You're mistaken about the, the level of my unholiness, the level of my sinfulness, but it is true, God is not like us. And if I wanted to contend with Him in court, I wouldn't have a chance. Not, not a one in a thousandth of a chance. Our human finiteness is no match for God's infiniteness. That, that is really the underlying statement, right, that begins this journey in, uh, um, in chapter 9, verse 4, He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? God is wise. He is mighty. In other words, he knows what he's doing and he has the capacity to do it. So can some human being harden himself? Can, can he become so stubborn? Can he, can he think to himself, you know what, I'm going to contend against God and be successful? And the answer is no. That is really uh, Herman Melville's book, Moby Dick, right? Um, Melville confessed that part of his intention in writing that book was to, to make God like this, this incredible sea monster, right? It's not just a whale. It's supposed to be the biggest and the craziest mythological sea creature and that this, this Captain Ahab, even though he has no chance, is going to stand in stubborn rebellion against the God of this universe. He's going to attack and fight to the very end, even though he knows he can't win, and try to exalt that sense of, of, uh, um, of pride and of stubbornness. And Job's point is not that at all. He is thinking God is so big, no human being can resist his justice, his rightness. You don't have a chance. So the question is, is there a place for penitent sinners? Job will say, yes, I cannot stand right before a holy God. But I am penitent. I'm a sinner, I recognize, but I don't just want to be a sinner. I want to be right with the Lord. And is there a place for someone like me before Him? 
Is there a place for someone that actually wants to be right before God? That's a significant question. And that's his point. His problem is that what is happening in his life right now, according to God's sovereign purpose, it seems arbitrary. It seems unnecessary. So without, without pride, without anger, without a rebellious heart, is there a possibility that he could address God, call him to the court, and let him know, Lord, this doesn't seem good. This doesn't seem right. It is, something, is there something that I'm missing? And his problem is that God is inaccessible that way. Secondly, God is too powerful. And by too powerful, I mean that in his sovereign care of this universe, his power is overwhelming. Look at verses 5 through 10. He who removes mountains, and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, he shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and the Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. See, it's an exaltation of God's God's power over all of creation. Each of these men in their, in their statements will, will identify God as being powerful, will identify God as being great. And Job is no different. He is, he is, he is agreeing with their theology that God is all-powerful, that He can do all things. But notice the tenor of the things that he is saying. God can make mountains, is not what he says. He can remove them. He can overturn them in, in his anger. He, he, can, he can put the earth in its place or he could shake it and its pillars would fall apart. He could command the sun to shine? No, to stop shining and, uh, and not rise and seal up the stars so that their, their light would not reach us. He has the capacity of trampling out the waves of the sea. He is the one that's made the constellations, right? The galaxies beyond us, right? The bear, the Orion, the Pleiades. He does great things beyond searching out marvelous things, and that's the term for the miraculous. He does things that we cannot do. His point is that God is above all creation. He can do all these things because He is God. But as Job says this, you realize the tenor of what he is affirming in God's power is that He is too powerful for any to contend against Him. Right? He has a right to remove mountains. He, he can overthrow the ocean. He can blacken out the... He can do as he pleases, and he has got... And it's that sovereignty that is difficult for Job. Because in this moment, it's not, it's not an exaltation of his power and praise. It's a fearful trembling of his power and judgment. They all agree that God is powerful. But Job is wondering, why demonstrate your power in this way in my life? So God is inaccessible. That is a problem. God is powerful. And it's not that it is a bad thing that he's powerful. But the way that that power has been displayed in Job's life, it is a problem. And then God is unapproachable, verses 11 through 13. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. 
Now listen, this is what he's saying. He's saying that God is unapproachable, meaning that he is unfathomable. Unfathomable means that you can't measure him out, you can't perceive him. Right? Despite his capacity to, to remove, to shake, to command, to stretch out the universe, to trample, to do many unimaginable things, God is moving in, in Job's midst, but Job is saying, he passes me, and I don't see him. I know what he can do, I know what he has already done, but he seems so distant, so unperceivable, unapproachable, immeasurable, that it's like God is working against me, and I don't even see him here. He snatches away, and who can stop him? Who can turn him back? Lord, give me back my kids. Give me back my life. Who can say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. It's a weird statement, I know. I want you to understand a couple of things. That, that Job will mention the sea creature, Rahab, a mythological sea creature. It, if you want to put it in our vernacular, think of the Godzilla or something, right? Like, like he, will, he has turned back Godzilla and Godzilla's minions, is, is what he's saying, right? And um, the idea of that is to say that even those things that oppose the Creator God, that are so powerful as to disturb the nature, right, of the oceans itself, God just kind of, He puts them, He forces them to bow before Him because He is so much more powerful than any of that. So if, if their cohort, the cohort of those, those sea creatures, by the way, I think a, a couple of weeks ago when we are going through uh, chapter uh, uh, 7, um, I, I, I accidentally skipped that entire section on the sea monsters, right? Don't worry, you can live without that. Go read that on your own. But it's the same thing. And the idea is these mythological beasts, right, that would oppose God the Creator. And later on, we'll see even the Leviathan mentioned, right? Again, mythological creatures that come against Him. And then again, this word Rahab is not to be confused with the, 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 um, you know, the Rahab in the Old Testament that hid our spies, right, the spies of Israel, and was um, redeemed into the line of, uh, of, of Israel. Um, that Rahab, actually in the Hebrew, is spelled differently, even though in our English it looks exactly the same. This is the sea creature, the monster, and the point is God is treating me like I am one of them, like He is needing to subjugate me because I am His enemy, but I'm not even His enemy. He said, God is unapproachable this way. I can't even see Him to say, Lord, Lord, I'm standing right here. Your foot is coming down on all the forces of darkness and you accidentally squashed me too. I can't even address him, right? This is the problem. And then we have another set of problems as the, as the passage continues. God is unbeatable, verses 14 through 20. His point is that even if you are innocent, there's no access to God. So you want to challenge him in court, you can't beat him, he's too strong. So earlier, right, so the, the couple verses we just looked at, Job's argument is that I can't even find God in the midst of this suffering that he's poured into my life. I don't see where he is, but now he's saying that even if I found him, how could I contend against him? How could I defend myself? How can I make an argument against God, very God? I have no access, no way of trying to beat him in court. Verse 14, how then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? How can he speak up if sea monsters, dragons, and, and their minions cannot stand before the Lord or win an argument before him? 
Verse 15, though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. He's saying, listen, even if I am innocent, and again, Job is not asserting that he's sinless. He's just saying that, that perhaps you are crushing me because you think I am in cohorts with those that are the wicked ones to oppose your creation. I am not. So even if I am an innocent bystander, right? I can't even answer you. I can't appeal for anything except to ask for mercy, even though I'm innocent. Should the innocent have to appeal for mercy to the court? Right, so you appear in court, and they say, hey, listen, you know, um, you are accused of burning down that local school. And so I said, no, I, I, I didn't burn down that local school. How do you plead? I plead innocent. No, you need to plead on the mercy of the court because that's your only chance of getting out of here without going to jail. What are you supposed to do? He's like, wait a minute. No, no, I, I'm seriously innocent. Like, I, I, was, I don't even know what school you're talking about, right? I, I, don't, I don't even play with matches. I'm scared of fire. I, I don't know what to say. I am innocent, so why would I plead, right, on the mercy of the court? He says, though I am right, I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. Verse 16, if I am summoned... Or if I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. It's not so much a question of whether or not God is listening audibly, but would God give Job a fair hearing? Would God give him a full hearing? See, the interesting thing is this is exactly what Bildad counseled Job to do. Confess your sins and plead with God. Job's point is that would do no good. One, because I'm innocent. And because even if God showed up to speak, I'm not so sure that he would give me a hearing. He already knows I'm innocent. So what would he hear from me verbally that would change anything? Verse 17 and on, he says, For he crushes me with the tempest. This is him just expressing, verse 17 through 19, right? How he feels in this moment. He crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let my, me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? He, he is saying, he says so many things that we can connect with his story at this point. He says, he crushes me with a tempest, a windstorm. Like the windstorm that crushed his children. He says, he feels the weight of that right now. Right? He multiplies my wounds without cause. That could be literal when it comes to Job, right? Sores from head to toe, like constantly, and he even describes it in kind of gross detail of how it kind of, it kind of blisters and bursts open and how there's always pain and burning. Like he's going through so much physical difficulties. And as he's doing that, he's saying, it's not like I could even catch my breath, and we've seen it, right? One servant after the next. This happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, right? It's like I can't even catch my breath. Instead, I'm just drinking down bitterness. And the term that he uses for bitterness there is the same term that, that, uh, that Naomi in Ruth 1.20 would use to say, you should start calling me, not Naomi, but Mara, bitter, because my life is that tragic, right? That, th this is what he is expressing in terms of what he feels and what is taking place. And he says, if it was a contest of strength, verse 19, God is too strong. He's mighty. He wins. If it's a matter of justice, well, you can't even, you can't even subpoena God. You can't even summon him to the court because he is always right. He's too great. This won't work. 
Verse 20, though I am in the right, he's saying I am innocent. My own mouth would condemn me. See, so you see him understanding that even though he is in the right, that the Lord could make him speak out all of his thought issues, all of his, the, his innermost issues of his heart, his mouth could condemn him. Though he is blameless of anything that would deserve this kind of punishment, God would prove that I am perverse. And not because God is unjust, but because he is right. Job is not declaring himself to be free of any kind of sinfulness. He is saying, though, that he has not done anything that would be deserving of this kind of punishment. You know, listen, let, let's make sure that we understand something. If we understand blameless in terms of external, actual, actionable sins, Job is blameless. It's not just Job saying that. He says that here. But God said that, didn't he? When he speaks to Satan in the courtroom of God, he says, have you considered my servant Job? He is blameless and upright. He says that in chapter 1, verse 8. Then he says it again in chapter 2, verse 3. Have you considered my servant Job? He is blameless and upright. Either God is exaggerating or God is accurate. That as far as his external work, his external functioning and living is concerned, he's a godly man. And he lives right. And Job himself is saying, listen, if, if God made me, my mouth would probably condemn me. I would probably be proved perverse as far as the depths of my soul. But as far as the things that I've done, wickedness, open and rebellious against God, I am blameless. And God would say, yes, he is blameless. Which makes all of it more inexplicable. Point E, God is inexplicable. Almost arbitrary in verses 21 to 24. This is where Job, uh, out of any place else in uh, this passage or in uh, the book of Job he speaks almost to say that God is unjust this is as close as he gets to charging God with being unfair and unjust verse 21 he says I am blameless I regard not myself I loathe my life so he repeats the idea that he is blameless and when he says I regard not myself it's literally the phrase I do not know my soul my mind and he probably means that there is such uncertainty. I, I, I believe it would be something equivalent to us saying, man, I'm just beside myself. I mean, like, I, I can't figure this out. Like, like, like my mind can't comprehend this. I can't get underneath this to understand why these things are taking place. Because I am blameless and I can't figure anything out. And so as far as my life is concerned right now, if you said, hey, Job, how are things going? He said, I loathe my life. I, I despise my existence. I am broken and I give up. He believes that he is in the right. He believes that he has, no, he has not committed a particular sin that would be charged against him to deserve this kind of fate in this life. Can't understand it. And when it's all is said and done, he loathes it. I'll say more about this idea of loathing his life in a moment. But verse 22, it is all one, therefore I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. You see what he's saying there? He is saying, when I examine this, and it's kind of, it kind of sounds like Solomon in Ecclesiastes, right? That it can come to all vanity. He's saying, it's all just one thing. Because if I am blameless, and I'm being destroyed, and the wicked over there is living, and then he will eventually be destroyed. We're all destroyed. 
And he seems to be, God seems to be treating the blameless and the wicked alike. And you know, there's some truth to that in this life, right? There's wars, there has been wars, there's a particular war that is in our front pages and in the news, right, that is taking place. And yes, innocent people are being injured and killed. That happens in times of war. And so you might think, man, that is messed up. Like wars take innocent lives and they take wicked people's lives. It takes them all both, all in one fell swoop. And yes, that is God allowing that to happen. That is God in His sovereignty taking life that seems somewhat blameless and taking life that is certainly not blameless, taking them all in one fell scoop. Is God just kind of arbitrary? And the point is that he is inexplicable. He, I, I don't understand him. I'm beside myself. It's a funny thing when you think about it because this is the exact opposite, right, of our idea of God's general grace. Like uh, in Matthew 5, when, when Scripture says that God causes the rain to fall on the wicked and the righteous, we all say, you know, that's because God's a good God. That's, that's how God do, right? He, he's just good. Even wicked people, God lets you know, them have a good job, you know, eat good meals, have the rain fall on them. It's just His general grace. But if we flip that over and do the opposite and say, yeah, in God's absolute sovereignty, He causes general tragedies to all people, good and bad, then all of a sudden we shy back and go, oh, wait a minute, you know, like we, we shouldn't implicate God like that and stuff. God is sovereign. Job and his friends do not argue anything that sounds like our modern editions of God is sovereign, but he's not so sovereign that he would do something that's mean to you. No, their thing is, no, God does stuff that hurts. Why? Because he's God. That's what he gets to do. He's not me. He's not a stronger version of me like all the Greek mythological gods, right? Zeus, Thor. I mean, I don't know what gods you're fond of, right? They're not real, and in the interesting thing about them is they act just like we would act, only we're, they're just stronger. God is not like that. He gets to do as He pleases. So that when He judges, His judgment is right. And when He rescues sinners like you and me, He shouldn't do that. Why does He do that? Because He can. He is literally free. And if He was not free to choose whom He chooses despite their sinfulness that he would no longer be acting without constraint. He would be, if he's constrained because you figured out some formula that you prayed, if he's constrained because you have done certain things or you showed up to church a few times, if he's constrained, then that is not his freedom to choose. And we shouldn't even call it a calling or choosing. But Scripture uses that language because he is in his freedom. He's capable of bringing misfortune on all people. And he's capable of bringing absolute grace, saving grace, on sinners that cannot possibly deserve it. So Job says, when disaster, verse 23, brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. This is a strong statement. He says, man, when, when there is tragedy like sudden death, Job is saying, it seems to me like sometimes that he's just laughing. And I think he means mocks in the sense not that, you know, that, that he's like having a good time, but more mocks in the sense that there are some innocents that have placed their hope in him, but it seems like they have been put to shame. They have been mocked in the sense that they have been vastly and terribly disappointed. Their hope has been lost. 
The earth, verse 24, is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. See, so the judges don't see what is right, what is good. They don't cast a good judgment. And the earth is given over to the hand of the wicked. And we can amen that, right? That is most of the world, most of the time. If it is not He, who then is it? Meaning that if it is not God who causes these things, then who is doing them? And so we need to tread carefully on that because, because that is a theologically accurate question and assessment. Job is saying, who is responsible for everything, good and bad, in this universe? And if you are prepared to say, well, God is not in charge of what is bad, then who is? Who is this individual that can p- compete with God himself? Job is saying, God is that sovereign. I amen that with you guys. God has poured this into my life. I will agree with you guys. But his reason for pouring this into my life, we must disagree. Because I know that I am innocent. But at the same time, I cannot tell you exactly what I am supposed to do. I cannot tell you exactly why God is allowing such tragedy and injustice in this world. Man, he comes so close to saying that God himself is unjust. But he leaves it in the form of a question. If it is not God, then who is it? Meaning, it is God, but I don't know why. See, the point is, God's sovereignty means that he is the cause of all things. So if there is calamity upon the innocent like Job, it's God. And it's God doing it. See, it brings up that same question. How can God be both sovereign? And this is why we're saying that this is Job's trouble with God's sovereignty. How can he be perfectly sovereign and absolutely good? If it's not him, then who is it? How can he be both sovereign and good? And when he gets to verse 25 and 26 in the expression of his problem here in chapter 9, he says, My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go, go by life skips of reed like an eagle swooping on the prey. Here, Job is just talking about his expiration that is approaching very quickly. Job is expired. I don't know what better way to say this, but he is going to die. He imagines that with with his fading health, he is going to die. He's going to die soon. His life is fragile. It's brief. It's short and flimsy. The book of James refers to our human lives as vapor, right? James 4, 14. Isaiah refers to our human existence and our glory like fading grass. The sun shines on us, right? In Isaiah 40, right? And then we just wither away. And so scripture is replete with these ideas of our our mortal consistency. Uh, uh, our, our mortal condition and that we in our pride in our beauty in our excellence in our creativity in all the things that we have capacities to do and I've seen you guys you guys have great capacity to do great things right you guys are better than me at maybe one or two things right and I may be better at you than like 500 600 things right well, regardless of which way it goes, we are good. Human beings are remarkable. They create stuff. We have electricity and, and right, we have, we have the capacity to make light and dark. That's good stuff that we have capacity to do. But when you put all of that together, you are still just a fading vapor, a, a dying blade of grass. And Job is, Job is saying, my days are swifter than a sprinter. He's thinking about athletic games. And even back then, yes, they played athletic games. Those of you guys that hate ath- athletics, shame on you. God loves athletics. <laughs> he uses the illustrations in Scripture constantly. 
right? But apparently they did sprinting. How fast can someone run a, a, a hundred meter dash, right? I could run it in maybe like 14 seconds. That is crazy slow, to be honest with you, right? But like, like, like it's a matter of seconds how fast the sprinter goes. And he's saying, that's my life. It's fleeing away. And I can't imagine seeing good in this life before I'm gone. That's what verse 25 means. And he says, it's, my life is like, this, like a skiff of reed. A skiff is a boat. That's an unfortunate English translation for us because none of us knows what a skiff is. Right? It's, it's, like, it's like a fast, small, light boat made of reeds, meaning that it's meant to move quickly right, through the rivers. And he's saying, if you're standing on the shore and the skiff goes by, it's like those guys on crew, right? Like strokes, and they just kind of drift. And from a distance, they may, may seem like, man, they take a long time to get across. But if you're right there, they whiz by you. It's that quick. That's how fast my life is going. Or like an eagle swooping down on its prey. Have you ever seen that? That's terrifying if you don't see it coming from a ways and goes, oh, look at that eagle come. If you're just sitting there, and an animal comes and takes your french fries out of your hands, that is terrifying. Actual event that happened while I was like sitting on the grass near Bruin Walk as an undergrad, and I'm just eating my french fries, and I'm just hanging out and doing this, and the squirrel's there. <laughs> right? If you guys have been there, you guys know, you don't leave any kind of... They, this one literally jumped on my body, right? Like bam, 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 boom, and it took my fries. And I wasn't concerned about the fries. I was like, oh, squirrels are killing me, right? This is, this is the craziest thing. How fast did that go? It was a matter of a second. And he's saying, this is my life. It is quickly fading away. I see no possibility of good. It's all fading and gone. Let's move quickly. So if that's Job's problem expressed, and that's the long part of, of chapter 9, then, then, then he wants to explore right, his options. His options. First, his option in, in verses 27 through 29. Maybe he should just cheer up. Verse 27, he says, If I say, I will forget my complaint, I'll put off my sad face and be of good cheer. I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? He's saying, okay, so let's take one option. Option number one would be, let's just put a smile on. You know, when life gives you lemons, what do you do? You make lemonade, right? They said, I'm not, that, that's, I'm not mad at that. I like lemonade, right? That's a, that's a good thing. And that, it's not bad to encourage people to be optimistic, etc. I, I think that's helpful to, 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 to their soul, that they're trying to be optimistic. But think about the calamity of Job's life, the tragedy that's been poured into him. It, well, it, can he just put on a happy face? Can he just smile and move on? That's outrageous. And he said, listen, if I try to do that, it won't work. I become afraid of all my suffering. In other words, I'm overwhelmed by the suffering. And you know that you will not hold me innocent. I think he's speaking to, to Bildad here. And he's saying, and even in spite of me acting good and optimistic and talking about nice things, you know or you think that I am guilty of some deep sin. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? Why would I put on the difficulty of trying to put on a cheery face? Cheer up, Job. That's option one. And he says that's not going to work. Option number two. Clean up, Job. 
Verse 30 to 31. If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit and my clothes you will abhor. Oh, I'm sorry. My own clothes will abhor me. He says, okay, so if I, if I do the opposite, right, or if I confess of, to some sin that I can honestly say that I've not committed, and I try to wash myself with snow, cleanse my hands with lye. And I think he's talking about if I go through some ritual, some kind of, you know, some kind of methodological cleansing, a ceremonial cleansing that kind of demonstrates. If I go to the river and be baptized, right, will I all of a sudden then be cleaned up? Will my, will my fortunes change? Will my attitude change? Right? Will I be cleansed right, in a way that, that is good? And he says, no, you will still plunge me into a pit. You will still throw me down into a pit of mud. And my very clothes will hate me. My clothes will be like, man, Joe, you stink. Right? They'll be mad at me. He's saying it won't work. There is no ceremonial ritual or religious rites or cleansing that will rescue me. There is not enough cleaning up. Could you guys hear that? Because I think sometimes that is our canned response to people suffering. Uh, you, you need to clean up, you know. Maybe you need to confess sins. Why don't you go to church more often? No, I'm not, I think you should go to church more often. Because there is where worship, fellowship, and the Word of God and His grace abounds. You should go and hear again, to be refreshed again, to recite again the glory of the goodness of our God despite anything that is happening in your life. You should. But if you do that, thinking that that will clean you up, that I stop watching certain movies, I stop eating, you know, carbohydrates. I don't know know what kind of things that are the wickedness of this world these days, right? I don't eat anything processed anymore. Nothing GMO. Oh wait, is GMO the good stuff? It's the bad thing, right? Whatever it is, right? I'm, I'm just going to eat kale. Raw. Uncooked. No dress. Just, ah! <laughs> right? Like you might think that these things are doing something that affect your life in a way that is excellent and good. But the point is, there is no ritual humanistic cleansing that will be sufficient. Job sees that. There are things about Job, and he's living before the cross that is so wise that we would think, dude, this guy, even before the Savior has come, this guy gets it. There's not enough that you could do to make yourself actually pure. There's no way you could contend before an actual holy God. Cheer up, not going to work. There's too much that I'm suffering. Clean up, that's not going to change anything. God is God and I'm still me. And the third option Verses 32 to 35, and we'll finish with this section here. Find a mediator. Find a mediator. Uh, It might be better to say find an advocate, because I think he's still talking in the sense of someone that that is um, appearing on my behalf in a court of law. But look at verse 32 and 33. For he's not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. He says, what, what, what are my third option? Well, maybe if someone would stand before us, between us, would bridge the gap. I mean, as New Covenant believers, we immediately see the implications of something like this, right? 
He seems to be pointing to the cross and the person of Jesus so clearly that we're like, oh my goodness, Job could have been written in the New Testament. This is so crazy, right? But what he's saying is, look, I'm a man. And as a man, if I should come to trial against him, I couldn't stand. He's not a man, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together, that I say, Lord, you know, I don't like what you've been doing. Meet me in the, the grand trial room of your, of your holy courts, and I'd like to present a case that you're not doing everything as well as you could. Can he do that? He's saying no, because God does as he pleases, because he is God. And I, he is not my man. He's not a man. He's not a fellow human. So I can't even call him to account for anything that he does. He's saying there's, there's such a huge, huge chasm between him and me, the categorical difference between the creator and the created. There's no one to mediate. There's no one who might lay his hand on us both and say, this is God, the holy God, and this is me, and to bring us together. The Hebrew word that is translated arbiter here, it doesn't mean to judge. Job's point is not, you know, we need a special kind of judge that me and God could both appear, and he sits on like this crazy, you know, witness stand that's all celestial, and I've got my wooden stool, right? And we both kind of, it's not a judge that he's talking about. He is saying that what I need is a mediator, someone who settles quarrels by reconciliation, a negotiator that brings two parties back together, by laying his hand on both of us and bringing our hands together is the illustration of this one that would arbitrate, that would mediate, that would redeem us. It's interesting because once Job raises this question of an adversary, uh, not an adversary, an advocate, a mediator, a go-between, he doesn't just leave it that way. He brings it up again and again, in particular, and in a shining example of that is by the time we get to Job 19, and we'll look at that more closely when we get there, but Job 19, 25 to 27, let me just read that to you. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. How can that happen? I don't know, but Job seems to think that there will be some kind of physical life that comes after his skin is already melted off and he's gone. Verse 27, Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Job's point is that this third option might have an echo of hope. Verse 34, Let him take his rod away from me. That's the rod of punishment. And let not dread of him terrify me. Let me not dread all the things that God has poured into my life. Verse 35, Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. Then I'd be able to speak freely without fear, for I am not so within me. It's an admission to say, I know I'm not what I ought to be. There is so much stuff that is here that is kind of the, the, the foundational kind of uh, ingredients of what will take us to the cross of Christ. Job rightly recognizes God's absolute sovereignty, and he's correct. He has not done anything. He is blameless. God himself has said Job is blameless of anything that would deserve the kind of, of suffering and pain that has been poured into his life. And yet God has sent it. 
with an intention to prove his faith. But Job doesn't know that. You don't know that. I mean, you know that about Job. You don't know that about you. All we have is a blind faith in God that is absolutely powerful and that is absolutely good. And as Job says out loud and is very helpful, man, it would be such a good thing if there was someone who would sympathize, who could mediate, who could bridge the gap between the Almighty God and me. And we look in the book of Hebrews and we have one, a high priest, it's not like all the other high priests, who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who gets our pains, right? Who has struggled with everything that a human being might struggle with, who in a lot of ways is the, is the, um, uh, is, is the I, I guess, the New Testament version of Job who has done nothing wrong, and yet calamity upon calamity is poured upon him, and he bears the sins of, of, of countless sinners, and he takes them upon himself on the cross, and as he does that, he becomes then that mediator that Job is saying is missing. That, that I know I'm not perfect, but I know that I don't deserve this. And so if I could just talk to God, but I know I can't talk to that God. He is too big. So if there was someone that would understand and mediate, that would bridge this gap, and by the time we come to the New Testament, we find that Jesus is that one that will bridge the gap. And that by His suffering, we will be healed. And because God has chosen to crush Him instead of us, we have an advocate. We have a, a, a reconciler. We have one that will bridge the gap and take our hand in God's hand and bring us back to our Heavenly Father, not because we have done better than others, not because we deserve anything before this holy judge, but because Christ has removed our guilt from us so we might be right with Him. Job has a huge problem with God's sovereignty and His goodness. And without even realizing it, right, he senses the solution would be something like a mediator. And that mediator we know in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, even as we look to, to Job and his expression of pain and difficulty, as he expresses his struggles with your sovereignty and with your goodness, we are thankful that unlike Job, we are not left in the dark. We're not left with just kind of this hope that you might come through at some point that one day you might redeem us. We know that you have sent a redeemer for us, a mediator to stand in the gap, the infinite chasm of a holy God and a naturally sinful people. And Lord, I pray for each in this room that we would, Lord, understand your absolute sovereignty and that we would embrace your absolute goodness and that we would see those things, your justice and your love and mercy, intersect on the cross of Jesus Christ. And that if there's any here that is, that is thinking and wondering, that they would seek out the things of the Lord, they would call upon His name, repent from their sins and trust in Him for salvation, and to find that life that can only be redeemed by this mediator, Jesus Christ. We pray to thank you for his work and the hope that we have because of that good news of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray.